in our case, the data has never really existed before, or if it has, it's existed on paper um, and binders somewhere. Um, so we're aggregating, you know, 20,000 times more information and kind of beyond that. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Jake, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast, man. Absolutely, Aaron. Excited to be here. So um, the headline that you recently captured with Gecko was a $40 million series uh, uh, round of financing, which is pretty darn large generally. That's a lot of money. But particularly for the Pittsburgh startup scene, um, the only one that we've seen recently raise a similar size round was Fifth Season and Austin Webb, who we talked to a couple months ago. Um, but as a starting point there, um, you, prior to raising this round of funding, were already working with some very large um, firms and companies that, you know, is, is a major point of validity or credence to what you're building here at Gecko. But can you talk, maybe starting off a little bit, about uh, what you had to prove or what you had to communicate in order to unlock that round of capital? Yeah, I think, um, well, to unlock the round of capital is basically to have a functioning business that uh, um, people, one, liked and uh, created something that customers actually wanted to buy, which was um, this robot um, service that helps feed software, which leads to predictive uh, infrastructure failure for industrial facilities. Um, and that's basically what we do. We go out into the real world and collect uh, physical data that help uh, companies in the uh, oil and gas, power, manufacturing, and even defense spaces and, and some beyond. Um, basically stop their uh, facilities from breaking or infrastructure from failing. And that causes them to have shutdowns, um, which isn't good because it costs them a lot of money. Um, and so we, we demonstrated the fact that that was actually something that people needed and were buying um, and could scale. And uh, so actually the round of financing was, you know, relatively straightforward. You know, from the time we opened the round to close, it was about three to four weeks to, to do the, the whole round of financing. Wow. And a lot of that is attributable to this business model that Gecko operates under, which is um, people be very familiar with software as a service, which is, hey, I can access something that, you know, in, in past generations of business, there was a license for this version. And then two years I had to buy the new license for the new version of the software. Software transitions into this ongoing iterative approach, um, but you're not necessarily paying for it that, in that one-time fee robots, I've always kind of come at it from the thought process of, it's almost like an automobile company where I buy, you know, the, the high end or the mid tier or the cheap version of the robot. Yeah. And then I've got my robot here, but your Gecko doesn't abide by that model precisely. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's accurate. Um, yeah, I think when I started the company, um, originally started in 2013, right out of college, um, uh, built a climbing robot, that wall climbing robot that could go into an industrial facility and actually Helps do a power plant. Uh, it was approximately three to four million dollars that year, um, and then started the company. But you know, I think uh, I looked at what robotic companies were successful, and kind of didn't see very many. <laughs> um, you know, robots are exciting, and they were supposed to take over the world, but like you know, that hasn't really happened yet, and we still think it's coming pretty soon, but we don't know really know when. I think um, you know, I think I looked to uh, one um, business model in particular um, that. 
kind of stumbled upon the real value of robots, which, uh, which I'm kind of postulating through this company, which is, um, you know, robots um, being sold and then people actually using them to create value, um, you know, really um, wasn't working that well. And Kiva Robots is a great example of a robot company that, you know, had, a, had an acquisition by Amazon um, um, a while back. And, uh, and then it like didn't really get used that much in distribution centers for a long time. And then Amazon launched Kiva Systems, which utilizes robots um, as a part of an operation system. So it actually became a software, but was fed by physical data that robots were able to help generate. And that was like, where are things <laughs> in, in distribution centers? Um, but, uh, but it helped um, Amazon accomplish uh, one of their goals, um, along with a couple other ones. But one of their goals is you know, two-day shipping. Uh, this allowed them to have competitive advantages over being extremely quickly two days and below. Um, so, you know, robots ended up being more of like, oh, this is a better tool, a better hammer, essentially, for uh, a task at hand um, that was uh, helping uh, feed software that was making things more efficient. Um, so that's kind of what we wanted to create. We wanted to own the customer experience as it relates to robots helping with uh, identifying and stopping things from breaking before they actually break. And, um, and we've done that with customers now with like Chevron and Marathon, um, BP, Shell, um, Duke Energy, Southern Company, um, Department of Defense, those kinds of uh, entities. And uh, that's basically what we're doing. We're helping find information in the real world. And then the question should be asked, like, what the hell does this do for me? <laughs> like, how does this help me? Uh, and we're trying to now answer that question through software um, using machine learning and uh, integrating uh, artificial intelligence to help them understand like what they should be expecting into the future um, as it relates to reliability of their assets. Right on. So the that service element is so interesting because I have a good friend, Mike Dariano, who always talks about like the job to be done. So someone comes into Home Depot and they want a drill to screw something into the wall so they can hang their picture. It's like they don't even necessarily want the picture frame uh, held or the hole in the wall. They want the to look at that picture of a great memory or their family or whoever and experience that. And you and Home Depot or the, the tool is a gateway to that. And so to speak, maybe we can speak a little more tangibly to this job to be done, which is the inspection and the, you know, really significant implications of being able to evaluate the structural integrity of this infrastructure and the vast differences in cost that that can mean for the clients that you're helping. Yeah. Um, and I want to be clear to uh, make it take what may seem like a complicated business and make it really um, simple. Um, so we go into, let's let's call it the refinery um, at Chevron, and we go into Chevron and we work, and the robots are climbing all over different kinds of assets. Think of pipelines and tanks and those types of physical structures. And those physical structures are um, you know, previously being maintained and inspected, um, trying to prevent it from breaking with, uh, with humans. So, so like, this is the problem we're solving. So humans are going into these environments, and a lot of times they're dangerous environments. Um, you know, some stats show like up to 100 people a year with inspections either die or injured doing these types of um, jobs that are trying to prevent a pipeline from exploding, right, that you see in the news. Um, but unfortunately, you're not really able to gather that much structural integrity data using humans climbing around on things. Think of like humans dangling from ropes or climbing up with scaffolding. Um, at really high heights, uh, 50, 100 feet up in the air. And sometimes they're working on hot equipment. Um, and what they're doing is they're capturing 
um, a sampling size of the structural integrity that that piece of infrastructure, um, you know, is uh, um, like how well it's how, how healthy it is essentially. Um, and then they're doing that and giving that report to the insurance company and making sure they're compliant, et cetera. But really what you're doing is you're just guessing because you can't on thousands of miles of asset be able to identify that one little tiny spot that's the size of, you know, uh, <laughs> the size of potentially like a, like a, um, a couple millimeters or even like a millimeter um, that's going to cause your site to have an explosion and then halt production. And in some, in some cases, refineries will lose $25 million a day. So what we're doing is we're saying, okay, that system seems broken. And actually, these industries are losing upwards of a trillion dollars a year on opportunity costs that are lost because of a power plant that's only operating 60% of the year and not producing power for 40%. A refining site is only operating 85% of the year and not refining oil and making petroleum products for 15% of the year. Okay, well, that actually is very costly. And how much money are you actually spending on solving that? Not to mention the environmental issues, the you know the uh, the risk to human life, a lot of things. Um, and so what we did was we came in with a robot, and we started solving um, this problem by you know tackling um, the largest pain points, which is capturing enough data to be able to do anything to um, um, to actually like stop these things from happening take the human liability out and so make it a safer inspection uh, and, ma and maintain the asset healthier, um, as well as do it quicker because every day that this facility is down or one of our clients' facilities is down, again, they can lose up to $25 million a day. Wow. Um, so what we're trying to do is, you know, make a 10x or in this case, a lot higher, multiple uh, better solution, um, but then answer the question for the client because we always are asking, um, you know, they're always asking, like, what do we do with all this information now? Um, and so we're trying to help solve these questions for our customers by building this platform. And that platform is called the Gecko Portal. And so we do a lot of software development here at Gecko, which may, maybe some people don't know. Um, but the software package that we sell to our clients uh, are, is a place where the inspection and health of the assets uh, is stored. So that's where, like, their, inv their inventory and organization of assets are stored that we do inspections on. Uh, and then we provide insights into how to best get the get the most life out of that asset, how to get the highest return on that investment instead of having capital expenditure being super high at these sites because I have to replace things all the time because they always seem to break or, uh, um, you know, like, I don't know if this is broken or not, but we don't have enough data to tell, so let's just replace it um, for $60 million. So we're trying to help inform them with more information as well as start to identify trends and patterns across all these different industries that we're gathering billions and trillions of data, uh, structural integrity data on. And so we're actually creating this really interesting repository of, um, um, of damage mechanisms and what leads to those, um, which are really helpful insights to clients. And actually what, what's great is that people who have used Gecko and our robots have actually seen an 80% increase in asset uh, function, essentially. Wow. So they're actually um, seeing some amazing returns on utilization and every hour you save, you're saving potentially millions of dollars. Um, and so it's a, it's a pretty compelling um, business case. And that's kind of why we're scaling at the, at the pace as we are, yeah. um, is because you know it's an old industry. It's very antiquated, fragmented, and fraternal. And, um, and we're integrating this, this technology that has honestly been an industry and industries that have been ignored by the classic like startup in Silicon Valley type of uh, company. And it's because it's like, 
they don't get to see the problem that we uh, in Pittsburgh and in the you know in the in the East Coast, um, in particular, and in the South, like get to see. And so, um, I think that's like you know one of the unique things about Pittsburgh um, and this area in particular is, you know, everyone has their own little bubble that they're in, and the Valley has their bubble, and we kind of have ours. Um, but there's a lot of really important problems to solve in different like locations. And, um, and we got to see that. I got to see that, um, you know, where I grew up and, and also the, the, uh, different, uh, things I was exposed to. Um, and they were just like a little more of the heavy sort than the soft sort at first. And that's so anyway, it's been really interesting to see the, the evolution of the company as it has gone forward. Certainly. I want to touch a little bit on the Genesis story, but before we go in that direction, Another thing, and and do not quiz me because if you start to talk about like machine learning algorithms, it's going to go right over my head. But one of the conversations that I've heard people much smarter than me talk about is when someone is pitching, we're going to apply machine learning to X or AI to X or what have you. One of the questions that's a valid question to bounce back is, where is the actual competitive advantage? Because if everyone's putting, mm-hmm. if, if you're just accessing data that everyone else has access to, there really isn't that much of a moat around your business unless you have some sort of exceptional uh, other technology right. associated with it. But really part of the brilliance of, of what's going on here at Gecko is you're building these incredibly expensive uh, robots that climb walls, having them crawl all over these facilities that otherwise yeah. aren't being studied to this degree with you know top line sensors. And then accruing data that actually does, is differentiated, that you have access to, that you're pooling. No one else even has a comparable collection of data like that. Yeah. I think that's a, it, what you're talking about is like a hierarchy of data. Like there's a lot of data out there, but like what is fact and what is fiction? Um, and so like a lot of times in like deep learning, this is, a, this is a problem because a lot of times computers aren't able to tell what's fake and what's not fake. In our case, the data has never really existed before, or if it has, it's existed on paper um, and binders somewhere. Um, so we're aggregating, you know, 20,000 times more information and kind of beyond that um, than what they've ever seen before. But it's also in, um, you know, it's, it's in a, uh, so, we, so we gather all that information that we're not able to do like deep analysis on within software and really see like what's going on structurally. But also it's repeatable because it's a robot and there's not a human error involved. It's going to be the same inspection from, you know, uh, one quarter to the next quarter, one year to the next year, whenever the frequency of the asset is being inspected and maintained by Gecko. So we get to look at that um, inspection cycle to inspection cycle. um, And we get to aggregate other data from like assets to help us draw some interesting conclusions. Um, And that data just like hasn't existed before. Um, So yeah, what you're saying, the, the moat that we're creating um, is around the physical data that we collect. And then we get to do, you know, we, we get to make some really interesting insights uh, from that. And I'm sure that informs, so part of the press release that I read associated with the fundraise was, um, you'd, I, I think it was 50 robots in the stable and you're going to develop 50 more that you can go then deploy. And I'm sure there's an iterative process where you're constantly improving the design of that actual hardware that's being deployed. I'd imagine that there's things that you build the robot to be able to collect that you kind of have an an instinct or a suspicion will be valuable information, but you don't necessarily yet have the precise, like, oh, we're going to turn this information that gets collected into this, or is that a part of that whole product development strategy? Yeah, it's it's a part of it. I think we're mostly interested, though, in, um, in 
getting pulled in directions that customers are um, are repeatedly telling us are the most critical. Um, so, so it, you know, we we could have um, spent a bunch more time and effort, and we have spent a lot of time and effort developing different sensor um, platforms or payloads, as, if you will. And, um, and so we have about five of those payloads. Um, but we actually decided to try to make the robot as modular as possible so that we could show up and not just have one robot that could do one asset. Um, because in, in that way, you fall into the similar trap that a lot of robotics companies fall into, which is like, you're going to make a really damn good product that is really good at this one specific thing. But what about like the the hundred other problems that I have? Like your ro- I have to buy like, you know, a million dollar robot every time I need something like one little thing. Solved. So we really tried to make a robot that was extremely modular that was able to adapt to like 50 different types of um, uh, structure types or, or asset types, or contours. So we can do, you know, climb on uh, piping that is 72 inch in diameter um, down to like eight inches in diameter. We have robots that can climb on, you know, services that are 250 to 300 degrees Fahrenheit so they could operate while things are hot. Um, climbing on tubes, flat surfaces, concave, convex surface, all these different types of surfaces can all really be done by the same type of robot um, or slight adjustments here and there. And so we can show up on sites with, uh, you know, one type of robot that can do a plethora, 50 different types of assets. Um, and that's it's pretty huge. Uh, and in so doing, we also get to get a lot of really interesting market um, data around how big, you know, this really, really is. Um, and if you have information across a lot of different asset types of the same, you know, same types of sensor uh, and structural integrity data, then like that's where a lot of the value can come from. Instead of like, you know, pouring into like, we want to be able to do like the 50 different types of sensor techniques. Let's just choose like three and make sure the robot works. And um, provide value to the customer that's like immediately actionable instead of like geeking out and it's like always like the temptation um, so you really you're all you're trying to do and this was like the mantra that YC like drilled into our heads so when we were when we did it in 2016 was you know make something that people want or you can call it love we kind of like to call it love but make something that people love and it's better to have a few people who love your product than a bunch of people who like it yeah. Um, and so that's what we tried to focus on doing and our customers kind of directed us on where to go. And the revenue was just like a really helpful indicator of like, you know, what customers love and what customers didn't love. Right on. So if we go all the way before Y Combinator to, I, I, I believe this is the story accurately, playing around with robots that climb walls, basically. Yeah. Looking for an application, but looking for a way that could be used. Tell, take me through a little bit of the Genesis story leading into, hey, I think there might actually be like a company here. <laughs> um. Okay, I'll give you the quick, the quicker version. Um, but basically, uh, doing electrical engineering at Grove City College. Um, that's where I met Troy, actually, the co-founder and COO. And we've actually hired some really amazing people from from Grove City College, as well as CMU and other amazing universities. University here. of Pittsburgh, let's go. Come University on. of Pittsburgh. <laughs> yeah, we've a lot of those. Um, yeah, they're making a name for themselves with engineering. So um, really excited about their their talent. But um, um, you know, I was in, I was in college, just got off my first. Um, uh, entrepreneurship gig and um, we did a nonprofit in college biked across the United States uh, it was a cool story but um, um, was kind of like dr- not dreading but didn't wasn't really excited about going into corporate America um, but thought it was like a good thing to do and then in senior design um, came along and I had the opportunity to uh, you know pick my projects um, that I could work on and one of them um, that I, I I got I got to know 
a power plant manager who was like really close by to you know the the college, and so he described to me this like huge problem that I'm describing that I'm talking about right now, where it's really dangerous. Someone had died at their facility a year before doing an inspection, trying to find the the one tiny little issue that was going to cause the plant to explode, and uh, fell and died. Wasn't doing a good job, and so forty percent of the year the power plant wasn't actually operating. And so dug into what actually goes into stopping that stuff from happening, stopping the power plant from shutting down, how they typically do it, and why it's like really bad. And tra- made a rope. I made a robot with um, a small team of engineering friends that could climb a wall and do a, a visual inspection, really basic. And that ended up saving that power plant about three shutdowns that year, which is like. You can you can kind of estimate about three to six million dollars, which like for that small power plant was a huge deal. Yeah. Um. So they could keep on existing. Um. And so from that in that project, I um was was always like really curious outside of just robots. And so I dug into like, well, what does the industry kind of look like? Um. How much money are they spending on these types of things, and how much money are they losing? Um. Opportunity cost wise, as well as like you know, why hasn't this changed in fifty years? <laughs> um. And so dug into a lot of that, and it was, an, it was enough to validate um, pursuing this a little bit further and continue to be curious like with the product. And so I worked on it uh, after I graduated college, started the company in 2013, um, and um, basically poured my, my savings into it, bootstrapped it, uh, won a couple business plan competitions, and uh, worked for a systems automation company in Ohio for a year while I was moonlighting it. So that was like my 100-hour weeks. And then I, uh, a year to the date, quit my job. And 2014, did Gecko full-time for about uh, two years, again, pouring life savings into it to the point where, um, you know, uh, <laughs> sleeping on the floor of my best friend's apartment in Pittsburgh because I moved the company to Pittsburgh or myself to Pittsburgh and uh, down to about 100 bucks on bank account. And that's really when, like, Troy and I started to really collaborate on things. And, and he introduced me to Kevin Hale, who is the founder of Wufu and uh, partner at YC. And um, I met him at CMU and he said, you need to apply. And so I, I didn't even know what YC was when I applied. I was a pretty ignorant entrepreneur in 2015, um, probably still am. And, um, and so we got accepted, you know, first application, uh, went out to the Valley for about uh, five months and uh, officially reincor- like reincorporated the company as Gecko Robotics Incorporated, Delaware C Corp. And um, brought, Troy, brought Troy on in that last quarter of 2015 as well as a couple of engineers, um, uh, Josh Moore, uh, an engineer who's still here and was on that team. And, and we built we built robots and went through YC in the Winter 16 uh, batch. Uh, launched out of there, raised $2 million bucks, um, right after Demo Day. And we're um, picked as like the top company coming out of that batch. Uh, 2018, we raised a Series A, led by Founders Fund. And then just recently, Drive Capital led our most recent uh, $40 million Series B. Um, and so, you know, the that was all really exciting. I think the like the thing that we got more excited about was just the the evolution of the the business and how it actually actually was working and the kind of customers that were using uh, our services as well as uh, you know the the changes to the software and the and the value we were able to create for our customers as we were kind of you know building that momentum. Because that's a really interesting you know regardless of industry, regardless of product or service or what have you, that's almost like a universal story of. The entrepreneurial journey, which is, okay, you've created this thing that has value. It's just not mm-hmm. like a, a spud on the ground at the very <laughs> least, but whatever, however that manifests, finding pricing, finding the actual business model, in right. addition to the technical challenge that you guys are, are uh, taking on of 
if you're unlocking three to six million dollars of value for this energy plan or some of these larger ones, yeah. 25 million a day, how do you, you know, you want to be that loved, beloved product, but how do you position yourself in a way that, you know, realizes the value, not necessarily just of the work that went into it, but the value that you're unlocking for that customer? Right. Um, yeah, I think one of the things we did that was smart in the beginning was we didn't give our um, stuff away for free, which is a challenge to your listeners. But um, it's a real temptation to give away your, you know, whatever service or whatever product you're trying to sell for free to get initial traction. Uh, and, the, and the fallacy is, you know, if you're selling something that is worthless um, and you're giving away for free, like why should anyone value, you know, what you're, what you're giving away? Um, and I think that was like, that was really important because it, it, it helped our customers um, care about what we were doing more at the early stages when like nothing really worked. And, um, and it gave us good data to, to be able to tell like, you know, whether or not like people um, like would ever pay for this. And so like, you know, that first year, like I think I made $50,000 in 2000, well, that in 2015, I made like $50,000 on you know, a robot that um, wasn't all that impressive compared to like what we have, what we have now, but it was still able to generate a lot of, you know, really uh, helpful value. Um, but I think the key was like, you know, be confident like with your sale, like even if you're not proud of, not, you know, proud of, but um, even though like it's not what you always envision your product ending up looking like. Um, because as soon as you can figure out whether or not you have something that people actually want, you know, the sooner you can either give it up and move on to something that actually creates value, uh, or, you know, the more data you'll have behind, like, I need to dig into this and pour my life savings and all my blood, sweat and tears to it. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely get that first validation before you go for, go for step two. <laughs> um, one of the interesting things about any industry, as you've uh, mentioned, that is has a fraternal nature to it, where it's, it's insular, there's not that many players, they probably all know one another, is good news or bad news can travel very fast and, and, and doors can shut or open very quickly. It sounds yeah. like you've had a little bit of that um, doors opening experience. Yeah. So can you talk yeah. a little bit about that? Because it could be a misnomer in a, in a competitive environment. It's like, well, I want to almost keep this advantage to myself versus yeah. you know, if we're serving different markets, it doesn't hurt to help someone else. Um, what in particular do you mean? Just like with, with starting a company, fundraising? What? So you talked about some of these enormous companies yeah. that are your clients that you're coming in and you're doing these inspections for yeah. and unlocking or saving them an enormous amount of value. Their thought process as it pertains to, well, hey, I want you to work at these other five plants in our network mm -hmm. versus Steve's network over there. Like we don't want to share this versus we're happy to open doors and be a um, a testimonial or of, of something like that. Yeah. Um, I think what you're describing is probably like, how do you create um, evangelists for your product? Is that kind of it, right? Does that happen in such a kind of fraternal insular network like that, where it's not so fragmented? Like, were you able to, be, yeah. was it, were you conscious about that? Was it just the, the nature of having to be in this market versus another market? Yeah. Um, People in a fraternal market won't respond well to people who don't know what the hell they're talking about. So um, you have to know the ins and outs of um, what matters to them, um, as well as you know the overall pro problem that you're solving. And so you know I didn't know much about what's called non-destructive testing um, at the whole field that you probably never even heard of. I haven't. Um, and you know it's a nine billion dollar uh, industry, and it's all manual for the most part, uh, besides us. <laughs> but um, you have to know the ins and outs, like what signals 
um, like what sensors are good for what situations, for detecting which which damage mechanisms, um, what uh, you know what typically causes like wear in certain kinds of assets in certain kinds of conditions. Like there are a bunch of different grades of coal. What does that mean as it relates to like the degradation of your of your assets if you're dealing with a power plant or um, what kind of like PSI you're pushing through like your your uh, pipeline, like those kinds of things. And so you have to care about what they care about. And it's a lot to do with empathy, but also like requires a, a, a lot of curiosity. Um, and even things that like, you know, you don't always, you didn't like get you in, you don't necessarily have to love like the stuff that you're learning about. Um, luckily for me, I did. But, um, but I think it's, it's really important to, uh, um, uh, to look internally about like, <laughs> do I actually care about my customer? And do I care about the things that they care about? Do I even know those things? And how am I, and how am I like figuring out if I'm um, actually helping solve like the things that they care deepest about? And then like, how do I metric whether or not like I'm actually solving that for them well? And do I have like any way to show like if I'm growing in like the, um, like what's like my growth metric, like week over week or month over month? It should be shorter than that, but. Um, That's a Y Combinator thing. It's like, we want to see you increase sales every single week with that kind of right. consecutive rigor. Yeah, I think you have to spend a, a, a good amount of time identifying um, what you are trying to accomplish, like what's your goal, um, um, what's like the metric of growth that um, that you're looking at in as short of a time frame as possible um, that is directionally correct in like getting to a product that people want. And, uh, and then you got to measure that and see uh, growth week over week. And if you can't figure out how to, if you can't show growth of like 10% week over week, um, then you're going to have a hard time iterating quick enough to be able to survive as a company. And so it was really hard for a hardware service sales Pittsburgh company to do that. Um, but you can figure out ways if you, if you peel back the onion uh, enough. Um, and so we, we've you know, incorporated some really interesting things on like iterating hardware really quickly that's allowed us to try to increase the pace of our uh, design or product iteration um, that actually gets to that thing that people, people love in our industry. Right on. Um, want to be respectful of your time. Before we ask the last two questions, I got to ask you one more, which is um, it is an eternal quest to compete for talent that can actually make up a team building all the cool stuff you guys are building. Yeah. Um, part of the mandate with a round of funding like you've just done, in addition to building more robots, is bringing more people into the loop to help with that building process. Um, as someone who's effectively sold for potential investors, sold for these clients, <laughs> you're also selling when you try to get people in the door to join the team. Talk me through how you think about that and what the pitch is to be at Gecko relative to other technology firms that are sprouting up. Yeah. Um, we look at like, um, we try to use our values to um, figure out whether or not people are uh, of the right chemistry, of the right uh, culture, and of the right uh, ability to be able to work for Gecko. Um, we have a really high bar here, and it's like an amazing feat to get an interview at Gecko Robotics. Um, and we set up that way, um, and we have to have the high bar. I mean, we get 100, 100 uh uh, applications a week for engineering positions right now, um, and more um, and different inflection points, and that's pretty similar for the most of the roles that we have open is about forty, um, and so we have to be really um, uh, stringent about like who we who we let in, 
Um, and we're really just looking for people who are motivated by solving like the hardest problems. And if you really like hard problems and, and, uh, um, and, uh, and that gets you excited, then like, great. You have a whole team of people who are like that. And we interview to the values of grit, mastering failure, make each other better and, uh, make something that, that humans love. Yeah, the mission of the company is to um, to protect and maintain civilization's most critical infrastructure through machines and platforms. And so we're looking for people who get jazzed about about doing that in the robotics and software space on the tech side. Um, but we also uh, are really, you know, we're really creative. Like we have a lot of company events that uh, are open to people to come and and, uh, and you know, get an insight into the company. And um, when I try to close a candidate, what I try to look for is... Um, Understanding what really they get most of their fulfillment from and um, try to try to also, um, just like with a company, try to figure out um, what things that they do to show growth um, over time, what things that they care about, you know, family, um, passion around work and being challenged, like those kinds of things. And then help coach them. Like if you're, if it's not, if Get Good doesn't fulfill the things that lead to a happy life, then you should not work here. Um, and I also like to test um, people with uh, understanding whether or not like they care about equity. I think one of the things in Pittsburgh that's unfortunate that I, hopefully the culture will change is there hasn't been too many exits. Yeah. And so there's a lot of um, um, ignorance around equity and the value of equity. And so, you know, I've had candidates um, who we wouldn't, we, we don't end up hiring um, say like, you know, I don't want the equity. I'd rather have this higher base. Yeah. And we, we try to like test people to see. Uh, Cause that's an implicit signal, not just in like what they care about meta, right. but it's, it's, am I buying into Gecko or am I buying into the paycheck? Like there, there, right. there can be two different kind of mindsets and you're looking for the people that you want that fellow skin in the game. You may have the most because you are there, you know, sleeping on the floor with a hundred yeah. bucks. But as many other people as you can rally around you with skin in the game, that's what you're looking for. Right. You're looking for a care factor, like a, a care factor as well as a desire for impact factor. Um, and, you know, please go work for Google or please go work for Facebook if you are chasing a high comp because they're going to give it to you. Right. And they have a lot of great things at those companies, but it's just so different to the culture of a fast paced, um, high growth startup. And, um, you know, both. Both are good for different kinds of people. We want the kind of people, though, who would always choose a fast-paced, like, high-growth startup where they can have a lot of impact and get to work on things that they shouldn't be allowed to work on. Um, you know, who, who are willing to bet on themselves um, and create their own value. Because if you do really well here, you'll, you'll end up making way more than you would have made, like, going the safer route. Um, and, like, you know, by definition, like, a startup needs to be able to take risks to be able to um, move quickly, be agile, and uh, and uh, you know solve um, really important problems for for customers, um, and be audacious enough to like try to build that. Yeah, and build an immense skill set being in that environment for yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, I got to be respectful of the time here, so we're wrapping up. Digital coordinates where people can learn more about Gecko, job yep. listings, all that other stuff. Yeah, just geckorobotics.com. Um, you can check out um, what we do as well as careers. Um, and uh, a lot of fun videos to watch with robots climbing around on things. Right on. Uh, we're going to link that in the show notes. Goingdeepwithaaron.com slash podcast is the place to find it or in the app. We're probably listening to it right now. But before we let Jake go, I'm going to give him like one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge for the audience. Mm. Um, 
go read a book. <laughs> um, uh, I guess a recommendation. Um, my book that I read when I went out to Silicon Valley was Zero to One. Go read that by so Peter good. Thiel. Um, as well as um, I really, um, my co-founder Troy actually recommended this book recently. It's High Growth Startup by Elad Gill. He's been involved in a lot of successful startups. Yeah, he's been a helpful advisor for me for a couple of things. Um, so one thing I think that's been really, it's a good differentiator about the Valley that as well we need to do. And people like you, Aaron, and the team are doing a great job. But um, is the Valley is very um, generous with their time. And um, they like to help each other. And, you know, it's, it's uh, they're very gracious with the information that they're able to share. And, uh and so I think like the more we can do that, like as a as a, a tech community, especially in a startup community in Pittsburgh, uh, the better we'll, better we'll all benefit from that. So um, yeah, feel free to email me, um, um, uh, listeners. It's just jgeckrobotics.com. Um, and I'll be happy to help um, in any way I can. Amazing. Um, thank you for so, being so generous with your time, with your wisdom. I appreciate you being on the podcast. Thanks a lot. It's been fun. We just went deep with Jake Lucerarian. Hope everyone out there has a fantastic day.